I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark. Book of Mark. As you turn there, let me pray for us. Father, your word is living and active. It is always good for our teaching, our correction, our training in righteousness. It's always good for us. So we pray right now that as we open up your word that you would speak to us, that you would, um, that you would just come and encourage us, that you would equip us, uh, that you would allow us to uh, be used by you as a result of meeting together. Uh, for your honor and glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, being ill-prepared or not ready for something really throws a wrench in things, doesn't it? If, if a student is not prepared for exam questions, uh, there's a panic. If couples are not prepared for marriage, there's going to be problems. Oftentimes, especially with marriage, you know, uh, you might get prepared for the wedding, and there's a lot of preparation and all the checklists. Who's prepared for marriage? And so if there's no preparation for marriage and all the expectations that come with two human beings, there might be problems. If you're ill-prepared for an emergency, there's going to be problems. The hydro is out for an extended period of time. Stores are closed. What if you get stuck in a snowbank on an empty tank of gas? If you're ill-prepared for an emergency, you're in trouble. So what do you do about it? Well, you get prepared. You sometimes anticipate the things that may or may not ever happen. That's why you have, uh, well, obviously we're all going to die. I was going to say that's why you have life insurance, but uh, we're all going to die. So it's a good anticipation. <laughs> it's a, at least a true one. You know what's happening. But that's why we have home insurance and car insurance. You may never get in an accident in your entire life, but you prepare. Uh, because preparation is going to help you through whatever process may come. But how do we prepare then for what may be not just physical and external and something we can uh, muster in our minds or see other people go through? How do we prepare for what is spiritual? For what might come at us spiritually tomorrow in, in five years? How, how do we prepare our hearts? Well, the beautiful thing of that is God prepares us spiritually. And what we do is we follow we follow him in, in a life of uh, desiring to obey him and please him and follow his, uh, his ways. And through that, and through the seasons that he brings us through, he does prepare us spiritually. In Mark chapter 1, we see a preparation of Jesus. A preparation of Jesus for his ministry that he's about to embark on for the next three years. And it's not just a mission that is external, where Jesus is just out there walking around being seen and, and physically healing diseases, or where he's audibly speaking. Jesus' ministry, as you'll be aware if you read the, the gospel accounts, is, is very spiritual. And not just in a light, fluffy, uh, make-you-feel-good kind of way. Encounter after encounter after encounter, Jesus comes to demonic forces that are out to expose him, prevent him, uh, just harm him in any way. And so the battle ahead for Jesus is a spiritual one. So here in Mark chapter 1, we have most Bibles titled this little section, just the temptation of Jesus. As you'll notice in Mark, uh, as with other things in Mark, he is very summary version. 
He doesn't go into all the details. The temptation of Jesus, as recorded here in Mark, doesn't include um, Jesus coming back with his scripture references. It doesn't include what exactly Satan tempted him with. But what you will see is even in these short two verses that captures this entire story that we, you know, if you're familiar with uh, the Bible, you'll be familiar with the temptation of Jesus. But yet here, only captured in two verses, so much to learn. Let me just begin there by reading in Mark chapter 1 and verse 12 is where we find it. It says, uh, coming, so coming out of his baptism account, and then verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Stop there. It's incredible to see the Spirit, just prior to this, has come down in, in the likeness of a dove and uh, anointed Jesus' ministry. And, and you hear God's, the Father's voice billowing out saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then it says immediately, Mark always uses that language, but immediately the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. It's incredible to think about the Spirit. Uh, some, the other gospel accounts would say leading, but Mark uses a stronger word in terms of driving out. It's the same word used when Jesus drives out demons. It is almost an implied o- obedience, like there's no other way. The Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. It's a good reminder to think this temptation that Jesus is about to endure from Satan was initiated by the Spirit. The Spirit drove him out. God, the, the will of God for Jesus in that moment, the, the plan of God for Jesus in that moment, this wasn't a mistake. It was purposeful. The Spirit drove him out. Out where? To a wilderness. A wilderness all alone for a long period of time. And there, Satan came. And so, as the Spirit drives him out, we remember who initiated it. And and that's so important to think because when we go through trials of various kinds, well, where is it? How did we get here? Is this part of God's plan? Is it ever part of God's plan to, to drive us into something difficult, painful, or testing? Well, here, even at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, it was the will of God to drive him out into a difficult place. Humanly speaking, it was difficult for Jesus. It was wilderness territory. It was hunger and thirst. It was hard. And so when we go through various trials of different kind, we often ask, why would God allow this pain? We're normally thinking about the pain that's being experienced and why would God allow it? Uh, Or we pray that God, who is completely able, would take away the circumstance. But we spend not nearly enough time asking God, what is it that you plan for me in this time? What is it you plan to do with me or for me or for your glory during this time? What is it you plan to do through this trial? We spend not nearly enough time asking that. Or, God, is there something I need to be um, aware of that I'm being prepared for? That I'm I'm going through this specifically to be prepared for? For something else. 
You know that is the case through many of your trials and many of your circumstances that you can look back in hindsight and say, I know exactly now why God brought me through that. I know why God did that. It's so I could talk to this person and relate. It's so that I would be stronger for when that thing happened to me. You can see in hindsight, but often in a moment, we're never thinking, well, what is this preparing me for? If God has brought me, you know the, the, the phrase, if God has brought you to it, he'll bring you through it. Well, God brings us to stuff all the time, and we wonder, what is this for? Not, how can I escape it? Or why am I feeling this way? But instead, what is this season for? What does God want to do in me and through me? And what maybe he preparing me for? Whether it's uh, earthly and material or whether it's spiritual. Why am I going through this? What am I spiritually going to face? What is the temptations I'm going to face tomorrow or 10 years from now that, that God is strengthening me through this process? Trials and tribulations, as we know, build up endurance. And hope, ultimately, it's like a muscle-building exercise. So we ought to pray more than, more than rather, uh, God, take this away, or why would you allow this for me? Instead, we should pray, God, make me, or help me to be willing to obey you in this season, to grow as I ought to be growing, to, to be trained how I ought to be trained in this time. Through it all, I trust you. I trust you. Interesting, obviously, it, obvious to us because Jesus being God, sharing a will and a desire with the Father and the Spirit, he's not going to resist. But that's not you and me. Not at all. If the Spirit's driving us out to a hard place, we go with heels dragging most of the time. It's not Jesus. Jesus was let out obedient, trusting, willing. He knew this was right. And he knew it was good. So he went out by the Spirit's leading into this wilderness place. Now wilderness, I, you know, there's so many things biblically when you think about wilderness that just come to mind. Uh, the first thing that came to my mind as I was meditating upon this passage was this being drove out into the wilderness. I thought about in the, you know, the Israelite camp when they were unclean. They were drove out of the camp. They were drove out. And you think, well, we know Jesus wasn't unclean, but what precisely was his mission here on earth? But to represent those who were unclean before God. He was set outside the camp on your behalf and my behalf. And so even as he set outside the camp and, and, and spiritually as well, we see at the cross... What exactly was Jesus? Was he welcomed and this beloved son with whom God was well pleased? No, the father looked on him and saw your sin and my sin and was not pleased. And the wrath of God poured out on him. And so preparing spiritually for that, we know that that very fact of the judgment of God on your sin and mine was agonizing for Jesus. He knew it all well. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he wept and he sweat blood and he was so in agony over the wrath to come on him. The innocent, spotless Lamb of God, and yet he would endure being his father having his face turned away from him. The wrath being poured out on him. 
So is this to begin the preparation for him to handle that? Because we know in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's praying, he says, if there's any other way, if there's another way for them to be forgiven, for them to know your love and for the covenant with them to be secured, if there's any other way, take this wrath away, take this cup away, make it not this way. It was a temptation. If, if, if the Satan was there in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he would have said, just run. Don't take it. Just run. Go the other way. You don't have to take that wrath for them. Just run. If the enemy was there, he likely would have said that. But Jesus says, if there's any other way, but not my will, but your will be done. This is what is best. This is the way that was formed before the foundation of the world. And so him being in the wilderness was this beginning of the preparation of even just the, the loneliness of bearing the weight of your sin and my sin. It also uh, reminds us of, of Moses, who was uh, himself 40 days and 40 nights up a mountain, and he didn't eat or drink. In Deuteronomy 9, it tells us, uh, Moses recalling, he says, When I went up to the mountain to receive the stone tablets, the Ten Commandments, uh, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I did not eat food or drink water. So it's interesting to see uh, when Moses was uh, receiving the, the law from God, he describes it when he's telling the people again, the covenant that the Lord made with you, where uh, the relationship that God has reminded you of, says that, was, that happened in that 40 days and 40 nights. This reminds us here. Jesus gone into the wilderness for 40 days. Or it can also remind us of the, the significance of the number 40, obviously, in the Old Testament. But you think about the, the wilderness experience of the people of Israel as a whole. 40 years they experienced wilderness. They, they experienced the, the testing and the trial of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, right, it says, Remember that the Lord your God, listen, the Lord your God led you, he led you, on the entire journey, these 40 years in the wilderness, so that, you may, uh, that he may humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. It's incredible. The, the reason why God led out the people into the wilderness was to, number one, humble them, and then to test whether they would keep his commands. Now, Jesus, the one who is sent to deliver this people Israel, is being tested, or, or better said, he is being proved. He is being proved that he is the true Israel, the one who would obey God's commands, the one who is humble in heart. The, the, is, the faithful Israel who succeeds where the old Israel didn't. They fluttered and they failed. And just like the ancient Israel, Jesus came up out of Egypt, passed through the waters, and was tested in the wilderness. But he's unlike the old Israel in that Jesus passed the test. He passed the test. He is therefore then worthy to be called the Son of God. Israel was to be called the Son of God, but they didn't pass the test. Jesus did. He was worthy to be called God's son because of who he was and his deity his, his, uh, as God and because of what he accomplished in his humanity. 
He was in the wilderness, alone, lonely, tested, proved. It's amazing. And there he meets with Satan. Satan. Verse 13 says, He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. You know, it, it didn't occur to me until reading a commentary, the, the sequence of events here. You see God being pleased with him in his baptism, just in verse 11 there. I'm well pleased with you. And then all of a sudden, Satan comes in to tempt. And the sequence reminds me of the book of Job. Job, where, you know, Job is as righteous, and then Satan comes in to try to tempt him and to try him and to test his faith and his righteousness. In Job chapter 1, it said this way, uh, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and says, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? Have, uh, you have blessed the work of his hands and the possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hands. Only against him don't stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And what did he do? He tempted Job to denounce God. Through all the trial that Job then went through. And as we know in the beginning chapters of Job, in all of this, Job accepted. He said, who are we to think that we can just get good things from God, blessings from God, and not curses from God? He says, God gives and he takes away. Still, blessed be the name of the Lord. It's amazing. This similar uh, sequence of events, this, uh, the righteousness of Job on display, and so then the temptation of Satan coming in. Uh, God says, I'm pleased with Job. And Satan says, we'll see. We'll see. Hear the same thing. God announces, uh, I'm pleased with my son, Jesus, who has followed in what he should do. And Satan says, we'll see. So he goes out and he tempts him dangles things in front of his face. But it's interesting to think this was not Jesus' last encounter with temptation, with demonic forces. But what's amazing to me is I think at that point when Satan is tempting Jesus, they both already know the end. Like Satan already knows he's doomed. Jesus already knows that he will crush the head of the serpent. And yet, Satan tries anyways. He tries. Dangles some apples in front of him and says, will you take it? Do you want it? And Jesus, of course, as we know from the other gospel accounts, he responds with the word of God, the very power of God in word, and says, get away from me, Satan, at the end. And then Jesus goes on in his ministry then now prepared in fighting demonic forces. Obviously, he was prepared. He's God. But in, in his earthly form, in this new way, he is now showing us this preparation for what is yet to come. It's not a one-time encounter. Jesus constantly faced demons. And what we see exposed, really, is that the, the, the very reason that we're told, then, to put on the full armor of God. 
By Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, Put on the full armor of God so that you can make your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and powers of this world's darkness. And it's against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. We, too, face a spiritual battle every day. But I wonder how often we consider that as we prepare. As we prepare for life. As you prepare for next week. How much of your preparation was anticipating the fact that we are against the spiritual forces of evil? Like, obviously, you know, the, your toaster breaks and you don't, like, you know, dename it and, and say that was the devil that did that. You might want to say that. But, and that's the thing, you, you, there's a, maybe the pendulum and you're, like, so terrified of the thing, like, thinking, I've seen some really out there people saying everything's a demon, you know, everything's the devil and it's out to get me. So, do we pendulum swing so far the other way that we don't even believe that there is evil forces, that daily, that we need to be prepared because there is a spiritual war that is even more uh, in our face or more uh, active in us than what our day might bring. You might get through a, a day and nothing goes wrong, but was there a spiritual war? Was there temptation dangled in front of you? D temptation to be angry or bitter at someone? Temptation to be selfish or self-centered? The spiritual war is, is the greater battle. And so then when we think about preparation for what's ahead, we ought to be praying for spiritual preparation. That's why Paul literally says, put on the full armor of God. You need to be ready. Stand firm. And, and all through that, that passage of the full armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, it mentions prayer. Prayer. And we know prayer is preparation. It's coming to God and saying, I might not know what comes tomorrow, you do. And, and I have no power to change what happens tomorrow. And I have no power to even equip myself for tomorrow. But you do. So prayer, then, is how we prepare for what's to come. How we prepare for the spiritual battles of tomorrow and the day after and the day after. We put on the full armor of God. And we do it with prayer. Because, as, as he said in Ephesians there, Put on the full armor of God so you can make your stand against the devil's schemes. Do you know that there's a, a, roaring, a, a prowling lion ready to devour you? Is how the scripture de describes Satan. He's seeking someone to devour. Are you vulnerable? Are you vulnerable? Are you just walking around thinking there's no spiritual battle today? Are you walking around thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm good. You know, life seems pretty okay right now. And it often, I think, you know, there, we can see in our own lives when we are believing that, even if we don't want to, is by how much we are literally on our, our knees in prayer. You know, our prayer life is a good gauge of what we really believe about the spiritual war that's out there. Because if we're unaware of or we're thinking it's not a big problem for us that there's spiritual war tomorrow, we're, well, we're not just going to pray about it. You know, I might pray about... And that also, not just about how much you pray, because some people can be really faithful prayers, but what you pray. Are you praying about spiritual warfare in your own heart, in your own life? Or are you praying about, you know, physical stuff and money and the government? All these things that we can pray for and God loves to hear and is able to take care of. 
But are we praying at a deeper level about our souls, about the souls of our, our family, the spiritual war that's against them, spiritual war in our government, the spiritual war in uh, the healthcare system or our bodies? Like, where, where is it that we stop praying? Is it just at the surface level, or do we acknowledge the deeper struggle, the spiritual one? And I'm not saying, you know, over-spiritualize and over-demonize everything, but do recognize that we are, we should be prepared today for spiritual warfare tomorrow. What's amazing here is as Jesus being tempted by Satan, uh, he wasn't still alone. He wasn't alone. A, he was with the wild animals, which it mentions there in verse 13, which is interesting because some people have suggested like, oh, see, it kind of points back to like the Garden of Eden. And like the wild animals didn't touch them, and it was just like all good. Or it can be more so, well, the wild animals were there uh, kind of as an enemy, kind of as something else to cause a struggle or temptation. We don't know, because it just says he was with the wild animals. But beyond that, we know he was being ministered to, it says, by the angels. And the angels were ministering to him. There's angels. Encouraging him, strengthening him, upholding him. It's incredible to think. Because you know that, that uh, when he gets to the cross, well, what are, well, couldn't he just have a whole army of angels come and take him down? And yet there it seems almost in a greater weakness physically and, and earthly. It just seems like that guy is so weak and he needs the help of angels now. He says no. Because this is exactly what is to be done. And yet here, in his temptation, in, in the wilderness experience, the angels then are ministering to him. We don't know what that looked like. Were they in bodily form? Did they bring food, water? We don't know. We know that God, though, had take, taken care. God the Father had taken care of him during this time. So you see his preparation then for what is to come. Like this is an incredible opening to uh, where he's headed. We know, according to the next verses, he's heading into a ministry of preaching and proclamation. So he's got this preparation period, and now a proclamation. It begins. And it gives us a timestamp in verse 14. It says, Now after John was arrested, uh, that's John the Baptist, Jesus came into Gal Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, if you have ever told anyone to repent and believe the gospel, you know there's pushback sometimes. The word repent is repelling to someone who is, thinks they're okay. Someone who thinks they have it all together and there's no, you don't, I don't need to change anything. What are you telling me? My, I'm a good person. What do you mean repent? Why would I turn from who I am? I like who I am. To, to repent means to turn from. Turn, turn from one way. Sin, self-reliance, self-righteousness, religion. If you're trusting in all of these things to be uh, your hope and, and your next step, well, you need to turn from that. Repent. Stop trusting in it. Repent means turn from that and turn to God. Trust Him. Well, there's going to be opposition 
to the word repent. <laughs> Sad. Even a lot of Christians today are allergic to the word. I've heard pastors allergic to the word. I've spoken with pastors who says, do not call people to repent. And I have just been left awestruck and gone, I don't know what Bible you've been reading or what Jesus you think you believe in, but this Jesus says, repent. You can't serve two masters. You must drop the one and trust in him. That's called repentance. You stop trusting in self-righteousness. You stop trusting in your uh, ways that you love and you cling to him. That's repentance. You admit that you're a sinner, that all that you have is against God and you are unwelcome and unworthy of his kingdom. You repent of it and you trust in him. That he has cleansed you from all unrighteousness. That he has given you a new life. You repent and you turn to him and that's how you're made new. It's not through changing your lingo or changing your schedule to show up to a church on a Sunday or signing up to serve. None of it matters if you've not repented of your sin. If you've not left it all behind and said, I want to follow you and you alone. None of it matters without repentance. And that's the gospel that Jesus preached. It is no good news if there's no repentance. There is no ridding yourself of the very thing that keeps you from heaven. There is no good news if there's no repentance. Here it says, he proclaimed the gospel of God, the good news. The good news includes that you are a sinner who needs to turn. That's good news. Because it's not that you're a sinner who needs to sort yourself out and you don't have the power to do it. And you're never going to be able to do it by yourself. And good luck finding a way. That would be bad news. The good news is that they would believe. There he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Trust the good news. What is the good news? Well, the gospel of God. It's incredible. That's not a very common phrase in the gospels. In the uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel of God is not a common phrase, but it's very common in Paul, in, in Romans. That's how he begins the letter. He says, this is the gospel of God. What is that gospel? But of course, it's Jesus. The good news is it's Jesus has arrived. The kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled. The Messiah has come. Your Savior is here. Repent of anything you've been trusting in and believe. Believe. Put yourself fully on Jesus. Trust him. Follow him. Don't just try to keep yourself half in your own desires in your own way. And I'm going to keep myself. Repent of it and believe in the gospel. If you don't believe in the gospel, then you're doomed. John chapter 3, the most famous Bible verse, you know, God so loved the world, John 3, 16. Well, people forget the rest of the chapter. that says, if you don't believe, the wrath of God remains on you. If you have not believed, you've not trusted in Jesus, the wrath still is there. So believe. God has loved you. So come and believe in him. This is the gospel of God that Jesus proclaimed. He proclaimed and it would be vehemently, aggressively opposed by those who trusted in their religion so much. The Pharisees, the Sadducees. You see them. Aggressively against Jesus at every turn, not only because of his claim to be God, but because of the message he preached. That you don't trust in a religion anymore. 
You don't trust in yourselves. And they thought, what are you talking about? We've worked our whole lives to build this up. We're righteous enough. Leave us alone. And if you preach a gospel of repent and believe, what about us? What about our followers? What about people who are supposed to look to us and, and praise us for our righteousness? Your gospel says no one's worthy. We don't like that message. So they tried almost from the outset of Jesus' public proclamation. Almost from the outset, they tried to kill him. They tried to kill him. Shut him up. The trials came nearly immediately. When Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of God. The good news. Repent. We admit it. We admit all of our faults, all of our rubbish. We admit that we're weak and we're frail and we're scared and we don't know how to believe. And we throw ourselves fully on him and say, I, I do believe that Jesus was sufficient. I do believe he is who he says he was. I do believe that he is Lord. I want to trust in him. That's, that's what Jesus himself said. I love it because it's so simple. Repent and believe. It's Jesus' message. That's the proclamation. Later in, uh, in, in Mark, we'll see Jesus says to his disciples, in, even in later in this chapter, verse 38 and 39, he said to the disciples, uh, let's go to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out and throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, and he was casting out demons. He says, I came to preach. I came that this message might be seen, but most of all, that it might be heard. So then he also sends out his disciples to preach this gospel. The time is fulfilled, he says. The time is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. It's now. What are you going to do with it? And he says, you should drop everything else and take hold of it. Take hold of it. Take hold of Jesus. Repent and believe his good news. So it's incredible to think of our lives and what we face and we don't yet know what we will face. But how are we prepared spiritually? Well, first we respond to that gospel call, the proclamation of Jesus. We respond to that exactly in, in a way of obedience. If, if Jesus, as a command, says, I command you to repent, and I command you to believe, we obey. We obey. And from there, we ask his help to prepare for tomorrow. We know that if we, and, and, and you maybe experience this, and maybe experience it in and out, but um, oftentimes when you first come to faith in Christ, you're like, you're so full, and you're so excited, and then um, all of a sudden, a lot of things start going wrong, maybe. Or a lot of people start pushing back. Or, or you feel like life just got a whole lot harder. And, and then as you go on as a Christian, that excitement wears off, perhaps. And then the temptations don't. They're still just as strong. But the interesting thing is that the further you are from God, and the less, less excited you are about God, the less the devil needs to work against you. So you're like, oh, well, I haven't faced like a real spiritual warfare in like 10 years. It's like, well, have you experienced real union with Christ in 10 years? Have you experienced real love and passion for Jesus? Because if so, there's going to be warfare. Uh, John Piper says, I'll try to remember the quote. He says, you don't know, yeah, you don't know what prayer is for until you know that life is war. You do not know what prayer is for 
until you know that life is war. Because he describes prayer like a wartime walkie-talkie. I need backup. Prayer is not you paging for someone to fluff your pillow. Prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie. I need backup. I'm, in, I'm at war. That's what prayer is for. And so may we then be people who prepare. Who prepare. Jesus was prepared and going through trial and, and temptation we also do day in and day out, sometimes small, sometimes seasons of extended trial. But ask God, what do you want to do through this? How am I to obey you in this? How can you get glory from this? And what are you preparing me for? So that I can have my eyes open, so that I can be used by you tomorrow or the day after or five years from now. I, I'm willing and I'm laying myself before you. I've, I've repented of my sin. I've believed in the gospel and now I'm yours. So carry me. If the Spirit drives me out into a season of, of temptation or, or trial, the Spirit should drive me out. But he will be there with me. He will help me. He will guide me. And so what do you do as you face tomorrow? In your prayer time, you prepare spiritually. Not just physically. Not just thanking God for the, spiritual, for the, the physical things that you have. Thank you that I still have the breath in my lungs. But thank you that I'm still yours thank you that the enemy has not won and will not win prepare me to fight full on against maybe bitterness today or anger today or judgment today or gossip today prepare me to fight so that you may get glory let's pray well god we recognize your power and your ability we know that you know all things. And so we want to come to you, um, first off, saying we, are, uh, we vastly underestimate the spiritual realm. And we want you to make us more aware, just in our prayer, just in our, in our coming to you. Because as we do, as we trust in you through prayer, as we prepare spiritually for tomorrow, um, you are glorified. Because it's your power that we need. It's your nearness that we need. And so we just want to be people then who are well prepared, that we put on the full armor of God, sealed with prayer, to fight what's coming tomorrow. Whether that's just temptations in our hearts, whether it's a season of extended pain, uh, you can prepare us spiritually for that, not just physically, spiritually. And so we want to be people well prepared so you would be honored and glorified by our response. We also want to be people, as Jesus, who proclaim the gospel, the good news, we want to live lives of repentance and belief and repentance and belief. We want to share that with others and say we're all in this together. Thank you, God, so much for your word and how it uh, would encourage us and strengthen us and stretch us. Would you um, make it work in our hearts today? We pray in Christ's name.